0: Sovereign Refuge, and there's the translation code. If you would like to hear this in your own language, um, hopefully you're able to follow along by enjoying that. So let's take a look at the psalm first and and read it, and then we'll start to to try to unpack this together and see what God has in store. So this is Psalm chapter 2. And there we read, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand against the ruler and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This is the Word of God. I'm guessing when you read a psalm like that, you can have one of two responses to it. Um, Either... It may contribute to a sense of frustration uh, about God. Or in a worst case scenario, like we see in here, rage. Rage against God, against his plans, against his ways. Who is this God? Or it could be a tremendous source of confidence and comfort in a God who's sovereign. This is a sovereign God. Sovereignty is a kingly term. A sovereign is somebody who rules over a nation. By the way, Americans have no idea how to understand this concept. We elect our leaders. I had a Welsh uh, preaching professor who, in his accent, which I won't even try to recreate, pointed this out oftentimes. You Americans have no idea what it's like to have somebody who's just appointed as king by virtue of their birth. Because you elect everybody (laughs) for things. Well, here is somebody who's just appointed king, a sovereign, someone who rules over a people. This God is sovereign, and he provides refuge. That's what the psalm effectively says. And there's a relationship to Psalm 1. If you were here last week, and you heard us talk about two ways to live life, blessed is the man who... Does all, doesn't do some things, does other things. This is kind of bracketed that the last verse of Psalm 2 also talks about blessed is the one who. So there's a relationship between these two. In the first Psalm, it focused very much on the individual. This one expands it to whole people groups and entire nations. And in the first Psalm, the focus was on God's word. In this one, the focus is on the King of Israel as a representative, a picture of God's authority. And the central of, uh, message of, of the psalm, then, effectively, is this. There is a king God has installed, and only those who trust in him will find eternal refuge. That's the main thrust of what the psalmist is getting at. And if there's an eternal refuge in this king as well, all the benefits come along from that as well. There's peace. Think of a refuge. You find peace when there's a refuge. You have assurance. You have hope. You've got freedom. You find rest. There are probably lots of ways to illustrate this. What came to mind most immediately is an event that happened a couple of years ago uh, with me and my, my wife Jill when we were hiking at the Red River Gorge. And some of you may remember this story after it happened, we were, I don't know if you've been to the Red River Gorge, it's very scenic, very beautiful, uh, and it can be remote at times, so we hadn't come across very many people, uh, and we were uh, on the bottom part of a very, you know, thickly forested kind of area, and we uh, saw on a path in front of us a dog emerge, uh, you know, a formidable sized dog growling at us, like looking for a, for a fight, or something to eat, and it seemed to be that perhaps we were the ones that were the targets there was there was actually there was nowhere else to go. There was a small creek to the right, and this dog was not yielding, so we went across the creek and it kind of went along the way, and we crossed back over and kept walking and then he comes behind us, growling as well too. I mean there was nobody around this dog seemed apparently very ferocious and so then we thought, well, let's try to pacify it. The only thing that we had was a trail mix with us. So I started throwing nuts at the dog and other sunflower seeds and craisins and this kind of thing as, as well, too. And it didn't seem very interested in that. It was more interested in flesh, it kind of felt like. but. I bent down and slowly as the dog approached and, and kind of, there was no other alternate. I thought this was going to come down to blows of some sort. I know I'll lose. And the dog sniffed me a little bit. Then all of a sudden we were best friends. It was quite remarkable. And then a giant storm came with lightning and thunder and torrential downpour and now the three of us are a team looking for refuge together. And we did find it in the cleft of a rock. We found a rock, and there was you know, some other things going on there, but we were all huddled together. It was such an interesting scene. <laughs> no, no cell phone coverage at all whatsoever. And there was a name on the dog and a, a phone number, but we couldn't, couldn't call. So eventually, end of the story, we were able to call, and this is a dog that's been all around the states with its owner, traveling and hiking, but the storm had scared the dog away. And they had gone to get other friends from hours away to come and try to do a rescue search. So we ended up being great heroes <laughs> as, as, as a result of this. But the point is that that moment when the dog befriended us, befriended us kind of felt like a moment of refuge. They, we were afraid. I mean, we were afraid. And there was nothing we could do about it. And then when the dog says, oh, peace, I'm like ah, sense of refuge. And then the storm came. Not quite as afraid, but what are we going to do? And then it left. Refuge. So you know what it's like. It's a blessing to find refuge, but you only know what refuge is like, and you really like unless you've been in a place of fear. And that's what these nations are being driven to. You can only find true refuge in the king that God has installed. And that's supposed to be peace, safety, rest. But not everybody responds that way to this declaration. In fact, what we see in the first three verses is that people are actively rebelling against God. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand against the ruler and, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say. Let us throw off their fetters. Plot here is actually the same word in Hebrew that meditate was in Psalm 1. If you remember, you meditate on God. Blessed is the man who meditates on God's word. You think about it. You don't just think about it. Actually, then you apply it. You know, a lot of people, and, and, and Elizabeth was talking about that, you might come to church and you listen to some things, but if you're not digesting and then applying it in life, no wonder you're not experiencing the full blessing that's given to you. That's the positive aspect. These people are doing that the opposite way. How can we overthrow God's authority? How can we rebel against the one who says he's in charge of everything and the person who stands in his place? How do we overthrow those who are in charge? And here it's the Lord and his anointed one who are the targets. See in verse 2. They take their stand and the rulers gather together against whom? The Lord and his anointed one. And that anointed one literally translates Messiah. I'm sure some of you are familiar with that term, the anointed one. They're against the Messiah. Anointing in the Old Testament is setting somebody aside for a specific office. It's very weighty and they're put apart. They're established by God for his purposes. And for Israel, the earthly king ruled on behalf of God himself. And so this attempt... By nations and people to overthrow the king is viewed by this psalmist as an attempt to overthrow God. And why would they want to do that? In verse 3, God's reign through the king is seen as oppressive. It constrains and it beats down. Such an interesting contrast to Psalm 1 again where God's ways are viewed as refreshing and revitalizing. You run in the path of God's command. It sets you free, but these people don't see it that way. It's oppressive. And yet these are real people. They're real nations with real power. They've got finances. They have a military. They have political sway. And they're bent on destroying Israel's king, and therefore they're rebelling against God's authority. If you personally were the target of government forces who had power to take away everything you hold dear, you'd have reason to be Concerned and afraid. And there are plenty of people around the world who profess Christ who experience that. You'd legitimately be fearful. So, how does God respond to this? All these nations conspiring against Him. What's His response? And we see it in verses four through nine. And what we take away from that is, you know, He's not really worried. He's not concerned about it because he's in control and he has a plan. Even when all the nations and this influence is coming against what's clearly his way, he's not concerned. And he's not threatened. And really, if God is who he says he is, then how could, could he be threatened by it? I was thinking of, of Psalm 90 just to give you a little sense of some other songs that talk about who God is and why He might not be concerned. It's the only psalm written by Moses, and there Moses says, "Lord, you've been our dwelling place throughout all generations." Now consider the contrast here between God and man. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God." God's always been here. He always will be. He brought forth everything that you see. I mean, the the sheer majesty of the seven wonders of the world to something that he spoke into existence. You turn people back to dust saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. Or like a watch in the night. A thousand years to God, just like you woke up from yesterday. Can't remember yesterday? A lot of us probably can't. It wasn't that long ago. You sit and think about it, forgot that's like a thousand years. It's nothing. You sweep people away in the sleep of death. They're like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. This isn't to devalue your life. You matter. And every every breath you take is of importance, but on a scale by comparison, your Short life is nothing compared to eternity, an everlasting God who created all things. We have some people here who are great at at working with wood. I've seen some of your work. It's incredible, and you should be proud of it. And you put a lot of time into it. That's nothing compared to a God who just spoke and galaxies came into being. I mean, the scale of who he is is almost impossible to grasp. So when people rise up and say, we're going to overthrow you, what would his response be? (laughs) Do you know what you're talking about? That's so silly. If God is who he really says he is, then no wonder he's not concerned about that. It's really not that much of a threat. And the installation of his king on Zion, his holy hill, in verse 6, pictures this sovereign reign that is eternal. Kingdoms of men rise and fall. God's kingdom is eternal. What difference does that make? There's a phrase, history is Christ written large. It was first coined by Eric Vogelin in 1965 in a, a lecture called Immortality, Experience and Symbol. That's probably something not many of you are going to read later today. But the uh, the idea of it is that history, all the history in kings it's just Christ written large it's not the Roman Empire we look at it but that's come and gone America is going to come and go and Chinese dynasties and Indian dynasties come and go but all of these are just part of God's eternal plan it's really Christ written large it's based on Colossians 1.15-20 in him, I mean he's supreme over all things I came across that particular reference as I was reading a book by Wang Yi, who is a house church leader in China. And last week, Si Yi came and shared a little bit about her time back in China as well. Um, this is a book recently published called Faithful Disobedience. And it's so interesting because for many years, we in the West have had a lot of resources. And you think about how we take all that we know and we give it to under resourced people groups. Uh, China, as you know, has a wonderful movement of God's spirit and people embracing Christ as well. But what's beautiful then is what's happening now is house church leaders and others who have suffered and, 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 and experienced things we don't know now, their literature and their thinking is being translated for us to learn from and to, to gather more. I, we don't really know what it's like to suffer or to be persecuted. So they have a, 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 a richer theology than we do. And this is a this is some of his reflections. I, I just wanted to read a part of this with all that we've said in mind. Once I preached the gospel to the police officer who arrested me. I said in nineteen forty nine you established this regime by shedding blood. Later in nineteen eighty nine you defended this regime in the same way. What about the future? In the future, when you lose power you may still have to shed blood. Isn't that what has been recurring for the past thousands of years? No one has been able to break this cycle of history. However, the Bible says that the blood of Jesus enables us to get out of this cycle. The blood of Jesus on the cross can reconcile all things to himself. Since it refers to all things, it certainly includes China, the millions of communists, and the millions of people in it. I said to him, according to this scripture, I must tell you that the communist party will pass away. What boldness. <laughs> All of the powerful emperors and the political powers established by them in Chinese history are part of this cycle. But when the communist party passes away, the church will still be there. The church will always exist. Why? Why? Because the peace established by the blood of man is short-lived. Only the peace established by the blood of Christ lasts forever. Whether you believe it or not right now, let me ask you, isn't it better? Isn't it more agreeable to your conscience? And doesn't it give you more inner peace? I said to him, I'm telling you about a power that will last forever. But this power does not demand lands, swords, or all the authority in this day. On the contrary, it is willing to humble itself and submit to the swords and authorities on earth. If you want to use the earthly power today to oppress the eternal power, this scripture has already revealed the end result. History is Christ-written large, not Xi Jinping-written large. I don't know if I said his name properly or not. I know the ping part I feel confident about. I mean, here's somebody who understood the blessings of finding a refuge in God's anointed king and had the boldness to speak very clearly about the eternal kingdom, no matter who's in charge now. And, you know, there are leaders of every single nation, and some are tyrants, but others are actually quite admirable. And that was the case in Israel as well. It's actually interesting because The idea of a king was something that the people themselves wanted. It was their own rebellion against God. God was, if you read the Bible, their king. But they looked around and said, we want to be like other nations. We want a king. He said, it's not going to go well. It's not going to happen because here's the thing. They're humans, right? And they can be my representative, but some of them will make huge mistakes. We don't care. We want a king. And so God gave them a king. Some of you know, Saul came into power and he did not rule very well. He mismanaged and abused his power. He was kind of full of himself. Now the second king, David, was much better. He becomes the prototype for a good king and the inheritor of a promise that his kingdom will last forever. We read in 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 16, just some of these kind of selected from that. Now tell my servant David this is what the lord almighty says the lord declares to you that the lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors i will raise up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood and i will establish his kingdom he is the one who will build a house for my name that was solomon he built the temple and i will establish the throne of his kingdom forever so there's a promise that through that line This kingdom will be established forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. My love will never be taken away from him. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Wow, that sounds a lot like the Psalm 2 stuff that's happening. And those of you who know the Bible realize that David was a great king, but he had some real faults. And so did his son. Solomon Solomon did not end well. So the question that arises quite naturally is, will there ever be a king who uses his power properly? Will there ever be a king who cares about the people more than himself? Will there ever be a king who's obedient to God in absolutely everything? Who's just in all his ways? Who can restore things as they ought to be in the mess that we're in? Who will rule over Not just one nation, but all peoples. Will there ever be a king like that? That's the longing for Israel. They were looking forward to the Messiah, the anointed one. And it's really the longing of every heart. So when we open up the pages of the New Testament and we read that of Jesus when he arrived, God declares, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. We know that the Messiah is here. And Paul in Acts 13, 32 through 33, he tells this group that has gathered, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. Paul sees Jesus as the fulfillment of this song. And he's a very different kind of king than all the kings that had come before. He's a different kind of ruler. I, I think most of you know that he actually laid down his life even for us when we were enemies. He suffers on our behalf. He's the true and the faithful shepherd though we don't deserve it. What does he do when he says, this is what power looks like in my kingdom? He takes, takes the posture of the lowest person in the room and washes feet. And yet, at the same time, he is ancient and strong. He is the one, the agent through whom all things came to be. The image is of a time, and Psalm 1 ended this way, when we must give account to the king, and he comes with a sword. Just like Psalm 2 pictures to a time of reckoning, and only those who are found in Him will find refuge. Others will be outcast. So the time is now to recognize that He is King, and to enter into that blessed life. That He's a good King. I was thinking of an Andrew Peterson song, "Behold the Lamb" from "Behold the Lamb of God." It's been around for a while now, and I know some of us have been, been to his concerts before, but this whole longing for us to find kind of a, a, a king who will come, and even in, in the history of Israel, he wrote a song called So Long Moses. Here's just a, a couple of words from that that are in keeping with what we're discussing. Speaking for the people, he says, We want a king on a throne, full of power, with a sword in his fist. Will there ever be? Will there ever be a king like this? And so here we see, hello, Saul, first king of Israel. You were foolish and strong, so you didn't last long. Goodbye, Saul. But hail King David, shepherd from Bethlehem, set the temple of God in mighty Jerusalem. He was a king on a throne, full of power, with a sword in his fist. Has there ever been, has there ever been a king like this, full of wisdom, full of strength? The hearts of the people are his. How here, O Israel, was ever there a king like this? So hello, prophets. The kingdom is broken now. The people of God, they've been scattered abroad for how long, O Lord? So speak, Isaiah, one of the prophets, prophet of Judah. Can you tell of the one, the king who's going to come? Remember, they were looking for the Messiah. What's he going to be like? Will he be a king on a throne full of power with a sword in his fist? Prophet, tell us, will there be another king like this, full of wisdom, full of strength, the hearts of the people are his? Prophet, tell us, will there be another king like this? And this is what Isaiah says this king will be like. He'll bear no beauty or glory, rejected, despised. A man of such sorrow will cover our eyes. He'll take up our sickness and carry our tears. For his people, he will be pierced. He'll be crushed for our evils, our punishment feel, And by his wounds, we will be healed. We will be healed. From you, O Bethlehem, small among Judah, a ruler will come, ancient and strong. That's the vision that the Israelites and the Jews of Jesus' day should have been anticipating when he shows up and says, the anointed one is here. Well, here's the warning then or, and the opportunity in the final verses. In verses 10 through 12 what we're reading then is we've established that this anointed one is Christ himself is that lasting peace and refuge can only be found in him alone. There's this encouragement to be wise and be warned and, and when you're coming to this place of serving somebody then serve the Lord. Serve this king. Serve this anointed one with fear. Rejoice with trembling. This awe, this reverence before Him, So lasting peace, refuge, found only in Christ, the true king, it must be found in him. There's an urgency here, as much as there is an invitation. And it might seem when you're reading this, depending on your perspective of who Christ is and, and the Bible, it might seem kind of petty or power hungry, like this king is easily angered. I like how Derek Kidner puts it, God's patience is not placidity any more than his fierce anger, is loss of control, his laughter, cruelty, or his pity, sentimentality. In other words, God's patient. But that doesn't mean he's indifferent. He's just giving us time to respond. But he does care. There is an urgency to it. His anger, it's not a loss of control. When we think of anger, we think of road rage, right? And, but this anger isn't like that. This is an, a rightly justly placed anger against sin and everything that's wrong. That's the right kind of anger. And furthermore, his laughter isn't cruelty like somebody is suffering and you find it humorous. That's not the case at all. It's recognizing man's arrogance. That it, We live such a short period of time. And his pity isn't sentimentality like we're Some people would say, I'm not a charity case. This is a deep compassion, a deep concern for all he's created, every single person in the world. The fact that Jesus reigns means we can take refuge from him in the midst of our fears. Tim Keller has a devotion on the songs of Jesus, very, very short, but great, Um, going all the way through the Psalms. This is the, the prayer that he has attached Psalm 2, Lord, your answer to the chaos and strife of the world is your son, Jesus Christ. He will eventually break brokenness, kill death, destroy destruction, and swallow every sorrow. Teach me how to take refuge in you, in your forgiveness through Jesus, in your wise will, and in my assured, glorious future. And I think that's a, maybe a good takeaway challenge is in the week ahead as you find fears and they can come from all around the place, maybe something external or something internal, just to take that moment and say, God, teach me how to take refuge in you. In a God who controls all things, in a God who isn't surprised by what's happening, in a God who offers safety even in the midst of chaos all around me, teach me how... Do you feel like you need to be taught how to do that? I do. That's a great posture of humility. Teach me how to take refuge in you in the midst of my fears. Remember, God is in control. Remember, there's a king that God has installed Christ. And only those who entrust in him will and can find eternal refuge. That's the call that Psalm 2 invites us into, a kingdom that is not going to fail, It may look like it because of history, right? But actually, history is just christ written large. His kingdom will endure to the end. Father, I pray for our own hearts collectively now that we'd be able to learn more of what it means to take refuge in you. And boy, if there isn't a a clearer picture than in the Lord's Supper, that we find refuge from you in you, that this is the table that has been placed to remind us there is a blessedness and refuge, but only if we're in right relationship with the Lord's anointed one. So this table is a table of refuge for those who are sons and daughters of the Most High King. It's a sustaining grace that nourishes and strengthens us and reminds us that we can find peace in you, but only if we have found peace. Peace in you. So this table, for those of us who know Christ, is a time when we remember, we reflect, we receive forgiveness, we find refuge afresh in you, and we say we want to continue in that, in the moments from the time we consume this juice and this bread until we walk out of this room and live the rest of this day. Father, may we find opportunity to understand more what that means. Thank you for your words again for Psalm 2. And we pray that we would know this anointed one, not just as words on a page, but as a living God who's indwelling his people and whose kingdom will never end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.